1: Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I'm Tim being joined by Lance. How are you today, Lance? I am doing so well. How are you today, Tim? I'm doing really well and excellent, actually, because our guest, Lance, is quite inspiring, isn't she?
2: Yeah, she just uh, is, like you said, a powerhouse. I think we were talking uh, off air. You said she was a powerhouse. This is Heather Bish. It's the sister of Molly Bish, who went missing in, uh, 2000, in June to- of 2000 and her remains turned up 3 years later on June 9th in 2003 and heather has championed the cause for justice in numerous sectors uh in her life and to hear her tell her story was to say the least um emotional
1: yeah it it was emotional and again inspiring because she has tried everything you know along with her family her mom and her dad and some of the details in the case are, are so disturbing and sort of um, really just gives you visuals. But you can really feel the the pain and torture the, the Bish family has gone through.
2: Yeah, it's amazing because when this happened, it was the largest and most expensive search for a missing person ever in the state of Massachusetts. It appeared on numerous television shows. And with all of that coverage and all of, all of the searching... It still took three years. The remains were found within five miles of the house. So it's actually right in between where she went missing at the lake and the house. So the lake's five miles away. It was something like two and a half miles in between uh, both locations. Despite all of that, there's still no resolution, but the Bish family with Uh, Maggie and John Bish, that's Heather's uh, parents, and Heather herself, they founded the Molly Bish Center and Foundation, which is in collaboration with Anna Marie College, and it's also uh, founded by the parents of Holly Peranian, who went missing in Sturbridge, Massachusetts, so they were able to take these tragedies and bring them together to try to promote some good and some justice.
1: Yeah, and she's also working with State Senator Ann Gobi, and that's from Massachusetts, and so she is behind this new bill that that was filed back in January, I believe, which allows law enforcement to hunt for violent criminals on DNA databases using familial searches. So you can see she's cutting edge. Yeah,
2: she's been working at this for so long as well. And when you hear her, her voice and you hear how she still gets emotional about her sister and she still gets fired up about the lack of of justice, not only with Molly's case, but, but other cases, uh, the Molly Bish center, they focus on protecting children and the elderly. And, and you can, you know, that Heather has taken this tragedy and it's really become her life. And, and, She's doing such an amazing job with it.
1: It really is. And she sort of has a call to action at the end of the episode where she asks you to call your state rep. And she's really just talking to residents of Massachusetts in this specific case because there is a bill that has been presented that has not been passed yet. And so she's asking Massachusetts residents to call their state rep so they can tell their senator that their constituent supports familial dna searching
2: that is so important because we see it every day now right tim we see so many moments where uh dna has come back and uh just recently i think they they connected some some dude to a couple of murders it's it's solving everything right now and and this is so important for not only uh molly's case but all of the other cases that are out there these cold cases that we talk about and try to raise awareness for And for anybody out there who wants to get more information on the Molly Bish Center for Protection of Children and the Elderly, you can go to annamarie.edu slash about slash M-B-C.
1: Okay, everybody, thank you very much for listening. And we'll have more soon on when our live show with Heather Bish will happen. Heather Bish, welcome
2: to the podcast. How are you today?
0: I'm good. Thank you for having me.
2: Well, thank you for taking the time out of your day to join us. Um, how you doing? You hanging in there during this uh pandemic?
0: I am. I'm on my fifty-sixth day of being sort of housebound, so uh I think I've I've found a groove <laughs> with lots of dog walking, some yoga. Now I can get out in the sunshine and run, so that's helpful.
1: Yeah. Definitely yeah. helpful to get outside, do a little exercising
2: if possible, for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't know what the dogs are going to do when I have to go back to work.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think that's going to be the uh, the mystery pandemic, the dog pandemic. After all this is done, we're going to have a bunch of depressed dogs.
0: I know. We're going to have to start a new business. With doggy daycares booming, but really happy cats.
2: <laughs> I know. I was just going to say on the on the uh, reverse of that, we'll have exceptionally happy cats. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> so so heather we, we've been talking about doing a uh a show together in uh in worcester um massachusetts which uh is is opening a new theater and um it's it's really cool sort of convergence of um of people and uh and we had talked to you about doing it and and there's some some really kind of positive reasons, um, why we want to do this and, and talk now there's a, there's a bill that, that is out there. Um, but let's go back if you don't mind a little bit and, uh, talk about your sister, Molly and, um, what, what it was like when she went missing.
0: Sure. Um, almost 20 years ago, next, next month. So it's hard to believe, um, You know, it was in late May that we found started finding the bathing suit and pieces of Molly 17 years ago. So this time of year always has a a very somber time for me and my family. But, uh, you know, we didn't we I was 23. Um, I grew up in a just a normal working class family. Uh, My father was a probation officer. My mom was a teacher. Um, I was the oldest sibling and my brother John was three years younger and Molly was six years younger. John had been lifeguarding at Cummins Pond for three years prior to Molly getting this job. So we felt comfortable and familiar with um, those duties and Molly had trained all winter um, to become a lifeguard. She was a strong athlete, a strong swimmer. So we felt very comfortable with her taking this position. I I do remember having a little some some slight concerns just about the area you know Cummins Pond is a remote location um, in Warren Massachusetts many people don't even that live in Warren don't even know where Cummins Pond is Um, it's mainly used for fishing Um, it has had over you know some life breathed into it over the last I guess 25 years or so they started doing swimming lessons there but generally if you Lived in the neighborhood, you you knew about Cummins Pond, but if you lived across town or or in West Warren, you weren't very familiar with it. Um, It wasn't a super popular place, but I knew it was a place where um, some of the older people in town might smoke weed or or you know do some drugs, drinking in the in the woods around that area. Um, So I, I was a little nervous about that and had mentioned that to my mom and Molly. And my dad gave Molly what what we would call like a back in the those days, of course, this is really before um, cell phones came into practice and, and walking around with, um, you know, pepper spray was, was popular. Um, my dad was probation officer. So he had like what we would call a little coupon that he kept on his, um, key ring. And so he gave that to Molly and said, you know, anyone gives you a hard time. I don't know how exactly she would protect herself with that, but, um, it, it, it's symbolic of, of, um, you know she would be able to protect herself, so we didn't i mean we really we didn't lock our doors we didn't we we knew uh we we felt like we lived in this community for a long time i I was born in Michigan, my mom is from Michigan, but my dad had grown up in Westmoreland. so we were very you know familiar with the people that you know our neighbors and our our community members so we we felt very safe um Molly was on her her eighth day of work she spent the three previous weeks being trained by my brother um, to, to do the job. And, um, uh, my brother had gotten a job in, in construction and was really excited about that. He was home from this for the summer, um, uh, from college and was looking to really make some good money and, um, uh, he loved using his hands. So that was a perfect job for him to move into. And, you know, like I said, we felt very safe about Molly being at the pond. So we, we really didn't expect, um, the level of, of crime that happened. So, when my mother received a phone call at one in the afternoon on the Tuesday that Molly went missing, um, we knew something was off. Um, Molly had Molly's friend had been um, hit by a car. Someone on her softball team had been actually hit by a car um, the day before. So the town was already living in this sort of fearful um, tragedy that had unfolded the night the afternoon before, and my mom had woken Molly up that morning. In a, in a very special um, way because of those, that news. And she crawled into bed with Molly and, and told her about her friend and, and said they would say some prayers and they would check on, on her later um, in the afternoon. And, you know, we were, we were just going to pray all day that she would be okay. And, you know, she really had some intimate moments with Molly before uh, going to work. So Molly, you know, we know Molly was sad that day, but Molly wasn't um, an irrational child she was very responsible um, she played three sports she was an honor roll student she babysat she um, was close to all of us close to her friends um, she was happy uh, you know she in her life I mean that particular morning I think she was sad about her friend but she was in a she was in a good place um, so we had no you know indication of anything you know there was no thoughts for us that Molly would run away or anything like that. So at one o'clock when my mom received the news that Molly was missing, she called me immediately. I, I at the time lived a mile down the street from my parents. I had a 10 month old child and um, I jumped in the car and and said, I'll meet you at the at the pond. And by the time I got to the center of our, our town in Morin, um, I saw my mom kind of driving crazy toward and she's yelling out the window, stop at the police station, stop at the police station. So I never even made it to the pond. I, I immediately went to the police station um, grabbed my my baby out of her her car seat and went with my mother into the police station and my mother was frantic. She had gone to the pond. Um, there was a you know the it was like the first day of swimming lessons, so that was another reason why we knew Molly wouldn't leave. Molly again was very conscientious. Um, she was nervous about you know having to be responsible for swimming lessons and her parents going to stay and watch your kids. What was you know what was it going to be like? Um, so she she was. You know, again, it was for us and and knowing the behavior of the victim, we knew she wouldn't wouldn't leave. Um, When my mom went there, there was a woman acting as a lifeguard. So Molly's, at the time, there was no lifeguard chair. Molly just had a beach chair that she set up and she had a first aid kit that was probably bigger than a tackle box, like something um, you could put your feet on, you know, and sort of rest your feet on to get like some sun or something. And it was open. And the whistle was hanging on the chair. The walkie-talkie was in the in the sand next to the chair, and her, her shoes were on the ground as if she had just taken them off. And the woman at the beach that was acting as a lifeguard told my mother, you know, we haven't seen the lifeguard all day. And they, they seemed like kind of annoyed, like she took off. And my mom said, well, it doesn't make sense. I just dropped her off, and her shoes are here. Now, Molly's shoes being there is incredibly significant to my mom and I because Again, knowing the behavior of the victim is incredibly important in cases like this. And Molly didn't walk around without her shoes on. Molly didn't like that hippie feeling of um, grounding or having um grass in your feet. She thought it would felt icky and it was tickly and she didn't she didn't like anything squishy or, or gross oozing up between her toes. She she always had those like um you know, those like shower sports shoes that you wear. Like Crocs. Um Crocs. Yeah. So so she didn't um She would never go anywhere without her shoes on. So that was our first indication that something was really wrong. So, my mom, as we went into the police station, asked the police officer on duty to call the chief. He was an old friend of my father's, and she wanted to find my father. My father, again, like I said, was a probation officer at the time, and um, often in those days, he would go out on the road um, checking on his clients. And again, you know, this is early cell phone days, so, you know, imagine those. Movies from the late '90s. (laughs) What kind of cell phone you have? I mean, you fold it out in four different ways and pull up the antenna. That's what what he was sort of working with. So we couldn't reach him. We couldn't find him. The officer on duty said she probably just took off with her friends. And I said to um, it was Officer Earl Dessert, and I said to him, but she didn't have her shoes on. And he just kind of put his hands up. And I said, well, did you check her friends? And he said no. And now again, this is three hours after she was dropped off at the pond. So what the heck were they doing for three hours? Not looking for the missing town employee for sure. So we, uh, I said, well, I'm gonna go check her friends. I'm gonna go get her boyfriend. I'm gonna go look around, I'll meet you back at the pond. So I went to a couple different, I actually went to my friend Nicole's house and uh, picked her up so she could help me with the baby. We had been planning to go swimming at her pool that day. she was expecting us so she jumped in the car with me and we rode around to a couple of molly's friends houses and stopped at steve lucas's house steve lucas was molly's boyfriend at the time it was an early relationship they had been together about three months Um, if someone that molly you know again we're we're from a small town i had about 50 people in my graduating class and you know i think those numbers probably have doubled by now but you know you pretty much know everybody everyone that you go to school with, you get to know in some capacity through your experiences in the 12 years of, of being in, in high school or, you know, elementary school together. So, you know, it. she had known Steve. Um, he was from a troubled family, um, some domestic violence, some um, alcohol um, issues. And And so my parents didn't allow her to go to his house. Steve was allowed to come visit us. Um, there were some strict guidelines with that relationship. And I think um, you know, here's a kid who's who's, you know, his stepfather is abusive to his mother. Um he, he's got some mild learning disabilities and certainly no parental um guidance in how to ha- you know how to react to anything. So you know, I think immediately the police, you know, you, you automatically go to the family and to the to the boyfriend. Um, in many of these in, in these cases, and I understand that, but the the um, level that was placed on Steve was really um really a lot for a 16 year old boy with a troubled family. You know, there was there wasn't anyone helping Steve. There wasn't anyone advocating or saying you know, maybe it's not, you know, maybe it's not the boyfriend this time or maybe look at the parks commission or maybe look at the, maybe look at the police officers on duty. Yeah. Instead of just, you know, classic. Yeah. Yeah. He comes from a bad home. I think he was an easy target. Um, to me, Steve Lucas is the second biggest victim in this case. He died, um, in 2008 or 2009. He just could not beat what happened to him in this case and what happened to Molly. Um, so it, it, it's very sad, but again, I picked up Steve Lucas. He came with me to the pond. His family came down. As we got to the pond, um, when I got to the pond, that the fire department was already searching for Molly in the pond. I think um, again, coming from a small town and people knowing each other, the fire department reacted right away, and they and they did the best they could. And you know, my brother and my my brother was one that would go out and do a morning swim again. My sister doesn't like icky things, so she would not jump in a pond and go for a swim. She was more really there to get, you know, her experience as a lifeguard, get some sun, and hang out with kids. Not really um, into like swimming laps or anything like that. She was more of a pool kind of kind of girl. So, you know, I I, I, didn't, I never thought she was in the pond, um, but but I think you know it was a it was a proper call, and and the fire department was searching for her. Meanwhile, my no one had found my father yet. So I think, you know, police in all different towns were looking for his vehicle. So it, it was a little chaotic. And I just remember, um, you know, not knowing what to do and thinking something, you know, maybe she had been, I kept thinking, well, maybe she'd, if she'd been raped, maybe she was hurt. Maybe she sprained her ankle. She was like in the periphery of the woods surrounding the pond and someone would find her. There was some um, scraggly searches Happening, um, people just from the community were just taking their own, you know, and and the police, uh, the state police, by then were there and had organized some minimal searches, uh, but the crime scene was completely debilitated. There was no preservation of the crime scene. Mm. You know, the hours quickly went by. When my brother was was found, he, I, you know, I'll never forget. He ran and jumped into the pond and just kept diving and diving, and he felt like he knew spots in that pond that maybe other people didn't know because he had swam it every day for three years um so he was just screaming for molly and and diving up and down and and the state police had to drag him out of that pond and and tell him that he wasn't going to be able to find her um and then when my dad came you know it's 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 just it it's so crazy how your life can change in in a second you know and everything changes like you know, i'm twenty three years old and I have a baby, and my parents are helping me and I'm still sort of a kid and in that second, everything changed. My father came, and he was he wasn't he wasn't the same father anymore he was completely broken and repeating he was like dumbfounded like she was in the pond like she drowned he couldn't he could not like register the information he just like was kind of repeating and um and then very quickly after he arrived. Uh, the police took my parents to the police station. No one told us where they went. They were just gone. I mean, I guess you know, over over this time, my brother and I have have had the opportunity to meet other siblings of of abductions, and you know, the experiences are generally similar. And I, I guess I have to be grateful that I was 23 at the time and I was surrounded by my family and neighbors and friends. But very quickly you start thinking, how well do I know my neighbor? How how well do I know my friends? And how did they get here so quickly? And what do they do at home during the day on a Tuesday? So that once comforting closeness and feeling of being in a community changes very quickly. Um, again, everything sort of changed that day. Um, but we had to eventually go home, and I think that would probably be the hardest day of my life is when we had to had to go home, and we didn't know where Molly was. We didn't know if she was being hurt we didn't know if she was cold we didn't know if someone was torturing her or why they would take her or how we could get her back or or what to do at all um we had to go to sleep and i had to feed a baby and and take care of a baby and i just felt like i was on mars um i did not sleep that night and i remember running out as soon as the sun came up in the sky and thinking maybe that person might have dropped her off i like i said lived a mile down the street from my parents house so it was um my grandmother had left me her duplex when she had passed away a couple of years prior so i was you know in a family home and i just thought maybe this person would just leave her in our in our yard and i would just searched the yard and i searched up and down the road and um there was no sign of her they um had to organized a search the next day and my brother and I went down. Of course they wouldn't let us search. I mean, they let us to believe that we might be able to search, but they didn't let us search. Um, but I do remember one of the police officers saying she's probably just tripping in the woods. And I thought how odd,
2: come on, like, like tripping on drugs,
0: like tripping on drugs. I thought it was odd for several reasons. First of all, this um, particular police officer knew my family. knew my father was a probation officer. For some reason, at the time, he had a real, a real uh, zest, I guess you could say, for um, these young kids busting them. And he particularly was advocating that Steve Lucas did this. He he was the biggest one, screaming and pointing at Steve Lucas. And um, again, you know. I'm a, you know, my mom's a teacher. My mom's a special ed teacher. My dad's a probation officer. They, you know, they kind of know some stuff and they just felt like this kid, yeah, he's he's got a screwed up life, but he, we don't really think he's got the capacity to abduct a child and keep it from us, hide her. All, we have state police crawling all over this town and to continue lying, we just, yeah, maybe he, if anything, if I, if Steve Lucas was capable of anything, getting in a fight with her and saying some inappropriate things or yelling at her, I don't think he was even capable of hitting her. This kid was a kid who had been a, a victim of, of domestic violence and violence in the home. He wasn't, he was scared. He wasn't pre- perpetuating that that cycle. So it was very odd. And it, it sent off some, some strong alarm bells for me and, and continues to be um, something that I, you know, hold on to as one of my first experiences because I just think he, he this officer, you know, again, is saying my sister's doing drugs when there's no evidence of her doing drugs, none at all. I mean, None of her behavior prior to her disappearing or um, that day would lead anyone to believe she's tripping in the woods. And why would you think that and not, you know, I don't know, not something more, I don't know, like someone... Like one of the fishermen could have taken her, or later we found out that the parks commissioner had, um, <clears throat> been, you know, sexually um, abusing his own children and stepchildren. I still get leads today from young women who are CNAs going into this man's house that say he's sexually, um, you know, he's sexually inappropriate with them constantly. Um, just a couple months ago, I got a lead from a kid, a girl, now. I feel like if this guy, you know, we're responsible for Molly's demise that, um, you know, we're and, and we're sitting here watching these young women go into his home, that there's sort of an absolute responsibility on, on, on sort of ruling this, this character out of the picture. Um, but the state police haven't been able to do that yet. The parks commissioner um, also has a lot of interesting coincidences on this day. So, like I said, he's a, he, we later found out he had some sexual issues with family members. But the morning of Molly's disappearance, he was he ran into my brother at a hardware store in West Brookfield, which is the next town over from Warren, and he talked to John like like nothing. And he was buying rope and duct tape. And then he later told the police when he called in that when the lifeguard was called in missing by the by the mother. Said arrived at the pond that day, Um, and he let the and he spoke to the police. He said, "Oh well, John's on. John's working, not Molly. But yet he he knew Molly was working. He saw John that morning, so he too led led the investigation astray right from the beginning. There was confusion about who was actually working. Hmm. And that was
1: the one of the police officers.
0: That was a parks commissioner. So in our town, we have a parks commissioner who. Is in charge of the lifeguards and like some sports events and different things in town, keeping the parks up, gotcha, the fields, you know, up or whatever. I don't know.
2: And and you found out later on that he also had some uh, history of sexual violence. Yes. And he was buying rope and mm-hmm. duct tape.
0: Yep. Oh. Yep. And again, so a lot of so you know, the state police don't always, you know, it's not like on and order on TV. The state police don't share um, information in an investigation. So I, although I know some people have provided um, DNA, I don't know who has. And I don't know if that DNA has been um, tested against a small amount of DNA that we do have in Molly's case. So because Molly's um, crime scene was disturbed, there's very little evidence from the crime scene. However, we we're very fortunate. Three years after Molly disappeared, that we were able to find Molly. Over those three years, we had a number of different suspects. We lived in fear. You know, the first couple of weeks, we didn't even leave the house. I think there was a police officer at the end of my parents' driveway. Uh, so it's very much like living how we are today in this pandemic. <laughs> gotcha. <Right>. Yeah. Coincidentally. <laughs> um, we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor.
1: Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian Mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or well, what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold, And we're the hosts of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it and we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field, and we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program.
2: So real, real quick, I just wanted to ask uh, real quick, when you say the crime scene was disturbed the crime scene was the um the spot on the beach right where the shoes were
0: right right so i I think it was a day or two later that they were able to bring in some bloodhounds it might have even been a week i can't i can't remember the timeline exactly um it was a, a certain amount of time that wasn't best case scenario either um the bloodhounds did so like i said molly's in a folding beach chair and the pond is surrounded it's on a dead end street and it's surrounded by woods and trails. People go bike riding. They go hiking. They go take their dogs for walks and four wheelers go back there. At the time, I do think we had a bike cop at the that would ride the trails a bit, you know. But Molly, the bloodhounds went up a trail behind Molly's chair, which would, there were several trails or little trails. And one of those little trails would lead, led to a um, graveyard. So the cemetery is is key because we think that um, the person might have been waiting for Molly. And if you, you know, you could get park in the cemetery, you could um, walk that short trail and sort of have a higher level ground um, view waiting for the lifeguard to come. You can pretty much see if there's any fishermen on the pond or anybody, any activity. And then you could easily grab her or call her. There's some indication that the first aid kit was open. So it might be that someone feigned an injury and Molly just jumped up without putting her shoes on to, to go see if they needed help and they could have grabbed her really quickly that way. Molly was five, seven. She was athletic. She was strong. I mean, it would have taken a lot to, um, get her out of there without a lot of noise and damage. Um, I've walked that trail without shoes on, grabbing at leaves. Um, it's definitely possible without leaving blood or DNA, but, uh, uncertain the other um piece of this is that the day before molly disappeared my mother had had dropped her off and saw a man sitting in a white car smoking a cigarette and he it was early you know it's like nine ten o'clock and my mom's thinking what is this guy doing doing here at the beach she, he kind of gave her a weird feeling and and molly, molly like had bound out of the car and was running up to the uh lifeguard chair my mom was just like fiddling in her car for a minute like waiting to see if the guy would leave. And again, my mom's a teacher. So she kind of gave him that teacher stare. Like, what are you, what are you doing? I know you're doing something kind of thing. Right. And, and he didn't, he didn't budge. He just stayed there and, and confidently smoked a cigarette and he smoked very effeminately. Um, so that was something. Um, and my mom got a real, real good look at him and she got nervous. And so she ended up getting out of the car and going to sit with Molly for a while um, and talking to her, like, what, what are the people like that come here? And, what, what, you know, do you feel safe? You sure this is okay? And Molly said, mom, it's okay. It's just fishermen." And so my mom went back and the guy was gone. So she was like, oh, maybe I'm just overreacting. And she went about her day, not thinking about it until the next day when Molly disappeared. There was um, some um, witnesses that have said that they saw the white car at a car cleaning place that's at the end of the road uh, where Cummins Pond is. So it's possible that this person in the white car could really have uh, taken Molly. We've never found this person, we've never found the car. At one point, my mom paid uh, Jean Boylan who did the sketch of the Unabomber um, to come out here and draw this person because she just felt like the police um, sketches that they did with the computer really didn't grasp. And again, that, that cigarette with his left hand, she just felt like that was, that was key. So we did get a, a new sketch that was released over over time. And and again, we we've had a lot of suspects, um, but you know, nothing has really tied it. What what was our biggest break is that um, there was a man by the name of Tim McGuigan who what was has been labeled sort of a rogue cop. He was a local police officer in, in the town of North Brookfield, and he had a high interest in the Holly Pyrrhinian case, and he was writing a book about it and so he was kind of like obsessed the man had some personal issues he had a drinking problem he had some domestic violence issues and i think he got thrown onto several police departments so he was kind of working on this on his own and thinking of himself as his own sort of detective pi kind of thing and so he kept coming around and talking to my dad about different theories about maybe it was the same person that had taken holly perinian the unique Um, tie between the Paranian family and and our family even goes deeper because Holly disappeared in 1993. Molly and Holly were the same age. And in 1993, we went to church and the the priest had asked us to please pray for Holly. And Molly was so touched. She was such a sensitive soul um, that she wrote a letter to Holly's family. And she included a a family picture at the time. of all of us, and, you know, they kept that, they kept that letter, and when Molly um, disappeared o- over that time, they came to the house, and they showed us that letter, and it sort of united us, and at the time, you know, my parents are, the, you know, my dad's a probation officer, my mom's a teacher, and they've always been givers, they've always been sort of the type of people that, I mean, when I was little, we, we would give um, mittens to people who didn't have Uh, Mittens, You know, we we were never rich, but we if my my parents sort of taught us that we had privilege, you know, we did have things. We had a roof over our head and thereby we had to provide for others. We had a responsibility to help and take care of others. And I think because they had that um, value system and taught us that value system that after this happened to Molly and they started talking to people at the National Center and they talked to the Perinean family, they realized that, you know what, we didn't we didn't know. We didn't know that one in six children is recovered by a, a a photo, a good photo of your kid. I mean, how many parents lose their kid in a mall or a shopping center for a second and or or even more or Six Flags? And, and you know, that photo is everything. And we didn't know that there was this sort of underground um, sexual exploitation of children and, and trafficking. We didn't we didn't know that there were all these crimes against children. We just we just didn't know. Right. They right. felt very very strongly that we needed to educate other families because and we needed to advocate for children and we needed to create safer communities for our children to grow up in and so they literally started the molly bish foundation on our kitchen table with the Perinian family right by our side and they did over 170,000 child ids in the time that they were active my parents have since retired my father ended up having a stroke in 2007 Um, he recovered but he's limited in his you know he can't drive anymore and do these engagements anymore but in the time that they were very active they made such a huge difference they helped bring amber alert to massachusetts my thought my mother was literally on the phone with ted kennedy giving him hell because they were he was holding it up because of um how they slid term limits for judges or or limits um, limits for judges uh, sentencing into the amber alert law and he was concerned about that and my mom said no bigger picture we need to protect children and so Ted um, voted for that, and and they developed a relationship from there. And he was very supportive uh, of my family, and um, we actually sat at his at his wake with him. So it it was it was a special relationship. But getting back to Tim McGuigan, he um he had this obsession, and he was sitting at a bar with his I don't know some some hunter and. The hunter was talking about how he had saw pieces of a blue bathing suit in the woods and Tim said you know that's significant because that's what Molly Bish had on she didn't have an orange typical lifeguard bathing suit and probably not a lot of people remember that you know and, and so he said we need to go we need to go to this place and so the next day the hunter brought Tim up to this place and they called the police right away And that's where really where the search for um, and the recovery for Molly began. We were incredibly lucky because Dr. Anne-Marie Myers was working at the medical examiner's office at the time and her background is in forensic anthropology. So she designed a grid by grid search over 500 acres. That was the first that was ever done in Massachusetts and the largest search that was ever conducted in Massachusetts. And they brought in recruits and they literally went out in June, hottest, hottest days in full gear, searching through thick underbrush, walking up steep hills, uncovering animal bones and and testing and and finding, and looking and searching. And um, they were able to recover 26 of Molly's bones. So we are very, very fortunate that they use that approach to recovering Molly. I don't know that we would have found as much pieces of Molly had we not had that sort of design. Uh, this was happening, um, they started searching for Molly in late May of two thousand and three when they were alerted to this, and so it took weeks i mean they 'd find a bone, an arm bone and they 'd find a leg bone'd find a, you know this and we didn 't know if it was Molly and what they 'd have to do is take mitochondrial DNA and test so they were taking our DNA and her hairbrushes and and um, hoping that maybe they would find the skull because if they could find the skull, they could match the teeth and one day they did and I remember I was, I was living in Amherst at the time and we would drive out to West Warren every day. And I remember getting there, I, my daughter was by that time three and jumping out of the car, you know. Um, cause that ride was, took forever for her, for a little three-year-old that 45 minutes. So um, I remember that day because it was so hot and the district attorney and the assistant district attorney and the lead investigator were walking up the driveway in full suits. And um, I knew that that was, they were going to tell us it was Molly. I I was, um, it took, it seemed like walking up the driveway took forever. And I was ready to run away because I was afraid to find out the truth. But they let us know that they had found the skull and, and that we were, they were going to stop the search very soon after that and, and make the tooth the match. And it would probably... Take some time before we could um, identify her and, and, and get the remains back, and it did. Um, it took some time. We ended up burying Molly on her um, on her 20th birthday in August of 2003. Um, her bones were put in a baby casket, and the baby casket was put into a an adult size casket, and we put her prom dress in there and her favorite tiger stuffed animal and. Our friends put letters in there and um we just put whatever memories we could find. Um and we had a beautiful, beautiful ceremony and send-off and celebration of life. And you know, Rabbi Kushner came out and Marianne Williamson and um all these amazing, amazing people came, prayed with us. I, I think Senator Carey came to the wake. It was really um uh, symbolic of what Molly's life had become to represent. And what and what work my parents had done and given to our community and 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 later to to the Commonwealth as a whole. Uh, and and um, since then, um, you know, we've tried to find this person that that put Molly in that position, and it's been very difficult uh, because we we only have um, we only have what came from the recovery scene. Um, very little from the crime scene of, of where she was abducted from. Um, we've had so many, so many different campaigns um, over the years. I've hired private investigators. I've, um, I've put up uh, billboards. I have put posters in the 351 towns in the state. I have um, just um, asked people for help in every capacity. Um, My latest endeavor has been to bring familial DNA testing to Massachusetts. It is used in 14 other states. Uh, It has a great um, rate of success because um, currently when we have um, DNA from a crime scene that we can't identify, uh, we can put it into our CODIS system, which means that anyone who's committed a felony in Massachusetts, we can match it to. And then we can do it nationwide. And if it doesn't take a hit, then you're sort of sitting here like we are 20 years later. Uh, but what familial DNA does is if there's a slight match, let's say 40%, that means maybe someone in that in person's family committed the crime. And so there's uh, a greater amount of police work that goes into it. Uh, but it, it's just due diligence. And it's just science. It's a, it's a scientific way to bring you closer and to a better clue. Um, to bring this person to justice,
2: wow, well, thank you. I mean that was a incredible recounting of of the events um Thank you so much for uh talking so openly about that um I can't even imagine i can't even begin to imagine what it's like to be in your shoes and your and your family's position uh I just have a quick question where Molly's body was found How far away from the family's home was that?
0: It was about two and a half miles from our home and about five miles from the pond, so it fits the statistical data of, you know, crime scene and and dumping bodies. The interesting piece is that where Molly's body was found was, um, like hunting grounds. It's it was a sort of um, it's a it's a on a road uh, on the side of a road, very steep um, inclination. Um, happens to be where people um there's a hunting area happens to be where people hunt and so i guess like in massachusetts bobcats have certain trails that they go they run certain um areas it just happened to be a place where bobcats a particular bobcat um, traversed Um, so how much did this person know about you know the area i think a lot he he must know that molly was going to be alone at a pond he had the opportunity to grab her without anybody hearing or seeing anything and she was only there for eight days literally on eight days and it had been broken up over weekends and and this is her first you know official week where she was found is it was hunting grounds. so again you know it was a remote area it wasn't like it was um you know on the way anywhere or near the pond it was about five miles from the pond so it wasn't um it was definitely on a road leading out of town but um definitely someone knew that they wouldn't be able to find Molly there I mean we just got lucky that we were able to find her um, and I, I thank the hunter for being um uh, keen enough to identify that blue bathing suit
2: yeah so in uh in two thousand nine, there was a suspect that sort of emerged, and he had been convicted of murdering his girlfriend, and he was a former Florida resident. Uh, what's your theories on him? What's your thoughts on this guy?
0: yeah he he was real, really interesting. He um actually was from Southbridge Mass It's not far from where we lived, and where Molly trained to be a lifeguard. Where he lived is not far from where molly. Training occurred, so if Molly happened to go up for a Dunkin' Donuts, she may have run into him. You know, it's 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 hard for us to know. Molly was pretty friendly um, and engageable, so would she talk to someone in line at the Dunkin' Donuts? Probably. Um, would she say, "I'm oh yeah, I'm training to be a lifeguard. I'm taking a class down there." You know, it's possible she said all that. You know, uh, he's the only person that has actually committed a murder. Um, he fits the Composite sketch. He is drug addicted and violent. He has a history of 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 um, dealing drugs with his brothers, um, history of violence against women. So he and, he and he was a hunter and a fisherman, and he, you know, just actually got his fishing license renewed that April before Molly disappeared. So he, there's a lot of ties to um, Rodney Stanger, um, but again, haven't been able to rule him out.
1: And uh, his DNA, you, you, so you, you, I guess don't don't know if his DNA was tested. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I don't know. What I do know is that tests like, um, like what I want to happen against um, this unidentified DNA have to be carefully done because you don't want to um, ruin the sample and not be able to test it again and it's quite expensive and Massachusetts doesn't have the capacity to do that so we send out our testing to parabon now when they sent out Ronnie's DNA in 2009 Kathy Curran is a is a has become a good friend of mine she works at channel 5 She's an investigative reporter and she and I would call every week and say any word on the DNA yet any word on the DNA yet and they'd say anytime now anytime now that happened for 6 weeks we were calling the state police At one point, they, about six weeks into it, they called all of a sudden and said, "Heather, we're not going to talk to you about DNA anymore." "What are you talking about? Why not? I'm waiting for six weeks. Like we might have our guy. Like this might be it. Like I've been bracing myself to take this next step. Like what's going to happen in in a case or whatever. You know, you sort of try to mentally prepare yourself." And they said, "We're not." They just repeated, "We're not going to talk to you about DNA." well, I was pissed. So I called Parabon and I said, did you do the test? And they said, yeah, but we can't tell you anything. I said, I know that. I just want to make sure that you actually did the second test. You know, like, I don't know what these guys are doing. They got so pissed that I called Parabon. Like, it was like, I um like a slap in the face or something. But what happened is there was some, some communication issue or uh, something happened within the state police and the crime lab, and and it hadn't um, hadn't been tested in the lab, so they had sent it to Parabon. So they they were covering their ter- they were covering their asses basically. And over the twenty years, I I have learned a lot you know, about the criminal justice system, and I can tell you a lot of things for sure. It is incredibly incredibly biased. <laughs> I recognize that Molly's case has privilege because she's a white, pretty blonde girl. And because of that, I try to share and talk about other cases in Massachusetts because Molly's not the only girl that was abducted and murdered. There's so many cases out there and we don't talk about them. And you know, not every family has the ability to go on the news or does not every family works in a court system so they have the support of the, of the criminal justice system. We got lucky that way. You know, if I, if my daughter was abducted, would I have that same support? I don't know. I'm, I'm a teacher. I'm not a probation officer. Um, I know that these guys would much rather deal with my father than they do with me. Um, because I push a little bit and I, and I don't, I don't, um, don't let them give me the bullshit answers. Um, they have, oh gosh, so many times they have told me one thing and done another. They you know, your investigation is only as good as the investigator that's working on it. Um, oftentimes, we find out information from the media and not from the state police. Um, about my own case, <laughs> you know, yeah, that, I mean, Bob yeah. went down to check on Roddy Stanger's trailer because it hadn't even been looked at, and the guy was sitting in months for six months, sitting in jail for six months. No one even looked. No one said a, a damn thing. No, and and Bob found more things than anybody. It's a very difficult system to work with, and so you know I always appreciate you know guys like you who are pushing pushing these cases out and talking about them. My friend um, in Minnesota, uh, my my the Wetterling family, um, Jacob was abducted in 1988, and his case was just solved a couple years ago, and it was all because of people talking about it on the internet. And um, there was a woman who was blogging about um, these boys getting um, sexually assaulted in this particular town, and they tied it to Jacob, and they were able to get his killer. But guess what? He was never tried for murder. They had The family had to freaking make a deal with this guy to find the body, and so this guy can sit in a jail for the rest of his life as a sexually dangerous person on a porn charge, but not for murder.
1: Oh, that's frustrating.
0: We need to protect victims. We need to protect each other. Um, and that's what i I see you guys doing. you're helping you're helping us stay protected, I'm talking about these cases, making people aware, um, making people understand that you know the justice system doesn't necessarily work, and that we have to take care of each other. That's the most important thing.
1: I'm curious how good your, your mom says the composite sketch was like how accurate it looked to the, uh, the persons she saw.
0: Uh, <clears throat> the one that police did, she did not feel, uh, was accurate. Um, the one that Jean Boylan did, she was very happy with, um, that cost my parents $10,000 of their personal funds to get that picture done. My mother, um, Trying to, you know, she she was very concerned about the smoking and how his hairline was, and she kept saying he was Portuguese. I'm not really sure, um, you know, why she just felt like he was like like sort of darker um, skinned. I don't know if it's uh, her references from you know growing up in a Michigan neighborhood or something. I'm not really really clear. Uh, I haven't really been able to figure that one out yet myself. But of all the all the people that we've had no one has exactly been um that's it you know however sketches you know I don't know memory and 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 things like that can play tricks on you I think so I wouldn't take that as um you know we haven't identified the person I think the person that did this is certainly in our pile of people that we've collected over the last 20 years um I just don't not sure which one it is. We've had a number of suspects. We had this person in Florida, we had um, someone come up who was working on a child custody case and was investigating for that particular thing. And when he started uncovering things, it led him to believe that this person could be responsible for Molly as well. And he was convicted of rape, um, ended up committing suicide in jail in Western Mass. I again I'm not sure if they were able to get some DNA. I, I would assume they would have gotten some DNA from him. It, it, it's gotta be someone in that pile. I just I'm just not sure where. You know what what has um become very clear to me is that I think that we think that there's one bad guy. You know, one bad guy killed Molly, one bad guy killed Holly Perinian, it's just this one guy. But there's a lot of bad guys out there. There's actually probably one bad guy for every dead girl out there. And that's the reality. We're sitting next to the bad guys when we're taking the bus. We're sitting next to them when we're sitting in church. We're sitting next to them in movie theaters and dropping them off at baseball practice. These um, people are in in our society and, and in deep. And these crimes, these sexual crimes against children has been hidden for a long time. And I think that hopefully with the work that we're all doing and you know the attention that we're bringing um, to sexual crimes that that we can sort of uncover this layer that sort of lies beneath the surface um, and has has very detrimental consequences on our on our society. I mean, I think you know the scandal in the Catholic Church, the scandals that have plagued the gymnastics um, teams. Um, they, that exists in every in every field. I mean, there's people that commit these crimes in in hospitals and in churches and schools. Um, We just need to really, really um, be aware that monsters don't look like monsters. They look look like our neighbors.
1: Is there anything that people out there listening can do um, with the bill that's out there now?
0: Yes. I would say, please call your state legislator. Let them know that you support familial DNA testing in Massachusetts. It's incredibly important to all of us, not just victims of crimes and not just the unidentified uh, bodies that are collected in the morgue in Massachusetts. I mean, that's a whole other piece that we didn't even get into, but we do have a lot of un- unidentified bodies. And but, but for everybody, for each of us to be able to feel safe, that our Our child can stand at a bus stop. They can go ride their bike to their neighbors. We need to do everything we can to put the bad guys in jail and keep our community, our families, our friends uh, safer. And so if you please would call your legislator and let them know you support this bill and you expect and hope that they will too, that'd be great, I'd be incredibly grateful to you. And so would every family of abducted child in Massachusetts.
2: Well, Heather, my my proverbial hat is uh, tipped to you because it's very impressive to see somebody who had such a tragedy occur to them and their family turn it into something so positive and so productive to prevent that for other families.